On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, over the Christmas holiday, I got a book, the new biography by Walter Isaacson, who wrote a biography on Steve Jobs and a couple of other people. And his new biography is on Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci, as most of you probably know, is a very famous painter, among many other things. He was a 15th century Renaissance man in the Italian cities of Florence and Milan. And he's extremely well known for painting what might be the two most famous paintings ever, the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. And uh, it's been very interesting to read this book because he was just a, a polymath. He was so gifted in so many different areas. And uh, one of the most interesting things that I found thus far in reading about him is that he painted 15 paintings that we know of now, many of which are considered to be masterpieces by, I guess, the people that are experts on that sort of thing. But what I find interesting is that there are many, many more pieces of art by da Vinci that he left unfinished. In fact, he has many dozens of unfinished paintings, either that we know of or that we just can read about but haven't discovered because they've been lost to history. And the reason that da Vinci and other artists, I think, have similar tendencies, the reason that he never finished so many of his paintings is because he would get famously distracted. He would get so distracted that you can even see in the notebooks that we have that have been passed down from him, he would be writing out vocabulary words as he sought to teach himself Latin. Then he would begin doodling on the side of the page. So for you kids that have a hard time paying attention in school, know that a genius like Leonardo had a hard time as well. And in a sense, it's, it's a wonderful and interesting thing to see that his mind was all over the place. But in another sense, it's tragic that... His tendency towards distraction, his tendency towards drifting away from what he did best and from what was most important, perhaps has robbed our culture of more masterpieces by da Vinci. A term that you might find in leadership literature that describes what Leonardo struggled with is mission drift. Mission drift. Mission drift is a term that refers to something that happens in all organizations, and churches are not exceptions. And that is that as a church or an organization grows and develops and moves forward in its history, it begins from time to time to drift away from its original mission, from the thing it does that is most important. This summer, uh, when we would go visit Marianne's mom, uh, who lives right near Lake Travis, we would go down to the lake and uh, we bought a couple of small kayaks that our kids really enjoyed with getting in and paddling and floating out on Lake Travis in. And a couple of times, some of our kids would just float for a while on one of those kayaks. And, you know, you could see them on the beach and I would look up and look out and see Nate or see Ben. And then I would do something else for five minutes and I would look up again and they were what? 
500 yards that way in the direction that the wind was blowing because when they had stopped paddling, they had continued to drift. And sometimes they didn't even know it, right? They would look up and realize, well, I'm a long way from where I began. That happens in all kinds of systems and individuals and organizations. And so what we want to do this morning is as we enter into 2018, take a few minutes together to guard against mission drift for our church, for our organization, for what God is doing here. And so if you're newer to the church or if you're a guest today, maybe for the first time, you picked a good week to come because what we're going to do is re-examine and think again about our mission as a church. Why does Christ Church San Antonio exist? What is our mission? Today's goal is to lay out a part of that mission and to set the pace for our year in ministry that we are embarking on today. So if you're newer to the church, you might not have heard this before, but here is our mission statement. Christ Church exists to savor God's grace, build God's community, and join in God's mission. Grace, community, mission. From day one, four years ago, that has been our operating principle, our North Star, the thing that we believe God is calling us to do. This morning, we're going to take a look at the end of the Gospel of John and think particularly about the third part of that mission statement, joining in God's mission. How does the Gospel of Jesus lead us to join God in his mission? And what does that mean? If the church, as the scripture says, is the main instrument that God will use until the return of Jesus to renew and restore all things, what does that look like for us in this time and in this place? This little passage at the end of John's gospel shows us, I think, that this mission of joining God in his mission is not just something that we've made up. Rather, it's a mission given to us by Jesus himself. And so what I want to do is look at this story with you for just a couple of minutes as we consider why God has put Christ Church on the map and who he is calling us to be as a family together. So here's the main idea. Christ Church is a church that is centered on the gospel of Jesus and sent with the gospel of Jesus. That's why we exist. Centered on the gospel of Jesus and sent with the gospel of Jesus. So let me break that down into two points and that will be your outline for the day. Christ Church is centered on the gospel first and we're sent with the gospel second. So first, we're a church centered on the gospel. And that's something that we derive or get from the Bible itself. And we see it here in part uh, in this end section of John's narrative account. Look with me. If you'll look there in verse 19, where Daniel began reading, you'll see that this story takes place after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which you read about there in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 20. But the disciples don't yet know that Jesus has been raised. And so they're spending their day in the upper room hiding. Hiding from the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities who had conspired to brutally murder Jesus in the public spectacle that was crucifixion. A few days earlier that had happened. And now the followers of Jesus, we read, are living, verse 19, in fear. Fear for the Jews who had killed Jesus. Now they're afraid that something similar is going to happen to them. P. 
Peter has already denied Jesus to avoid a similar fate. And now the rest of the disciples are racked with shame and with fear and with doubt. Because Jesus is dead. Or so they think. But look, next, verse 20. Or verse 19, Jesus appears to them and he says that to them, peace be with you. And then we read in verse 20 that after he said that, he showed them his hands and his side. Now what's going on there? You can probably figure it out on your own, but I'll tell you, Jesus does this to show that he is the same Jesus, the same person that was put to death on the cross just hours earlier. Jesus is here giving evidence to his followers, that he has actually done what he came into the world to do. Jesus here shows them and he shows us that he came into the world to die. To die as a sacrifice for human sin and then to be raised from the dead. Jesus here is showing and convincing his early followers that he came into the world so that he would be put to death in just the way that they had witnessed. You see, the the Christian faith tells us at its very essence that Jesus died on a cross to forgive the sins of his people. The wages of sin, what sin earns is death. Sin deserves God's displeasure. It deserves God's condemnation because sin is ultimately rebellion against and hostility towards our good and faithful creator and king. Sin separates us from God. It banishes us from relationship with him. In other words, it puts us to death because separation from God equals death since God is the source of all life. But the gospel tells us that instead of condemning us, God sends Jesus, his own son, who willingly gives up his life to pay for what we owe for our sin. Jesus takes the condemnation that we deserve. Jesus dies in our place. And then the good news tells us that after that, Jesus was raised from death to guarantee that his sacrifice for sin was sufficient to show the world that he indeed has conquered our greatest enemy, death itself. That is what Jesus has been telling his disciples over and over and over, and yet they had never understood it. Just as one example in John chapter 10, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So Jesus is here demonstrating through his resurrected body, in a sense, that he has died to pay for human rebellion, for our our antipathy, antipathy towards God, for our rebellion against God. And he has been raised to new life as the conqueror of sin and death and the king of the new world that God will bring. Therefore, he can tell these fearful men and women who are hiding, hoping they don't get caught. Peace. You see what he says there? He repeats it to them again. Verse 21, peace be with you. And and what we see here is that for the first time, the disciples' eyes 
are opened to who Jesus actually is and to why Jesus actually came. Now they finally understand that the death of Jesus was not the frustration of their hope. The death of Jesus was the fulfillment and the foundation of their hope. And their response, verse 20, the disciples were glad. That's a radical understatement, by the way. That sounds Presbyterian. We were glad. (laughs) Overjoyed. Overjoyed is a better translation. They were thrilled. They were overjoyed. They rejoiced in an instant for these men and women. The worst thing that could have happened was transformed for them into the best thing that could have happened. The news about what Jesus has done in his resurrection moves the disciples, you see. It moves them from fear to peace, and it moves them from grief to joy. And so it is with all of us. If you're here and you're a Christian, if you believe that message is true, if you believe that Jesus died for your sin, if you've heard that news and you've trusted in it for your own eternal security and life, that's changed you because the gospel changes things. The gospel makes a difference. The gospel changes the way we look at ourselves. It changes the way we look at God. It changes our outlook on life. It changes our inner world. It changes our relationships. It changes our thoughts about the future. The gospel changes everything. The gospel gives peace to those of us who are afraid. What are you afraid of? We all have fears, right? Yesterday, I came home from running an errand, and Marianne and the kids were watching Planet Earth 2. Y'all heard about this? It's the nature documentary. And of course, I walked in at just the part that's all about reptiles. And I hate snakes. I'm deathly afraid of them. And I sat down for just a second, and, you know, I felt like the kids were looking at me, and Marianne was looking at me like, there's no way you're going to be able to handle this, Dad. And it was that scene where, like, thousands of snakes start coming out from under the rocks. If you haven't seen this, you can YouTube it, although I would not suggest it. There's a little baby lizard trying to get away, and all these snakes are chasing it down. And, the, and I was like, I, I can't do it. I'm out. Ran upstairs. I started feeling, like, anxiety and fear well up within me. And I don't like feeling that way. You know, it's somewhat of a joke, although I really am afraid of snakes. But there's all sorts of things that make us afraid, Right? We're afraid of reptiles, we're afraid of spiders, we're afraid of dogs, perhaps, but there's much more significant things that we fear. We fear loss, we fear death, we fear disharmony, we fear financial catastrophe, we fear being alone. But here's what this text says, Jesus Christ is with us and has already conquered death, so we don't have to fear. That's what the gospel says. It moves us from fear to peace. It also moves us from grief to joy. What might you be grieving this morning? There are many things to grieve in this broken world. Maybe you're grieving poverty, the death of loved ones, cancer, foolish things you've done in your life that have ongoing consequences, harm done to your children, broken relationships, bad marriages, The gospel says that our sorrow will be but for a night because joy comes in the morning. Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, the worst things that happen to us cannot match the truth of what has happened in Jesus. Our sin is forgiven and our eternal security is assured. Here's the good news. God loves us. 
God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why we started this church. You should know that. That is the North Star of our church. That's why this church exists, to proclaim and to live out that good gospel news that drives out fear and that drives out grief and that drives out unbelief again and again and again to tell ourselves that good, good story, to refresh ourselves and remind ourselves that God loves sinners and that he has done all that is necessary to bring us back to himself. The gospel is not just news, it's good news. I love how Brennan Manning writes about the gospel. I want to read you this quote from one of his books called Abba's Child. Here's what Brennan Manning says. The cross reveals that Jesus has conquered sin and death and that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of Christ. Neither the imposter nor the Pharisee, neither the lack of awareness nor the lack of passion, neither the negative judgments of others nor the debased perception of ourselves, neither our scandalous past nor our uncertain future, neither the the power struggles in the church nor the tensions in our marriage, nor fear, guilt, shame, self-hatred, nor even death can tear us away from the love of God made visible in Jesus the Lord. Listen, we are centered on the news of Jesus' death and resurrection because, as Paul says in Romans 1, it is the power of salvation for all who believe. Our church is driven by and built around the proclamation and outworking of the good news of what has happened in Jesus for sinners. We're centered. We're centered on the gospel of Jesus. You need to know that. If you want to know anything about this church, that's what we're about. And because that's true, secondly, we are sent with the gospel of Jesus. What does Jesus do next? He shows his disciples his hands and his side. And then in verse 21, Jesus says to them, peace be with you. And then he gives them a mission. Read what he says. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So here's how we see the outworking of it. The father sent Jesus to purchase redemption through his death and resurrection. And now Jesus sends us, the church, to proclaim redemption purchased through Jesus' death and resurrection. The job of the disciples of Jesus, the job of the church, the orders given by King Jesus himself are to go and join his mission. So for the next few minutes, I want, I want to say two quick things about this and then give you some practical application as we move into the new year. So two quick things. First, in Jesus' sending orders here, you need to see and understand that Jesus is not He's not like going into retirement in South Florida somewhere, wherever, when he ascends into heaven. Jesus doesn't say, all right, my work's here is finished. Good luck. No, Jesus continues to go with his people and be with his people as they are sent. That's why we read there in verse 22 that he breathed on them and said to them in sort of a mini Pentecost moment, receive the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is still the one accomplishing the mission. This is still God's mission. God is the one in Jesus through the Spirit who saves. He is the one with the power to get the job done, but he chooses to accomplish that work through his people. And we see that exact concept repeated in Matthew's gospel in what's known as the Great Commission. Jesus says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize, teach them all I've commanded you. Why? Because I am with you. All authority has been given to me. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen to what Jack Miller says about this. God's promise to be with us to the end of the age is no mere pat on the back to say that he will be with us at a distance with the energizing power supplied by ourselves. No, never. He is saying that in all our work, he will be secretly working by his own inward presence in our lives, taking away our fears, giving us love for the lost, enabling us to forgive our enemies and friends, and giving us a fervent trust in the power of the gospel to bring men to faith and eternal life. When Jesus sends us on mission, he sends us with all the power and all the authority that we need, his power and his authority. He is with us in our task to proclaim and live out the gospel. That's the first thing. Second thing, the entire church is a sent people. Now, Jesus here is giving this command to his disciples. It might have been the 11, but most likely it was more than that. But the disciples represent in the New Testament, and they set a template for the work of the entire global church in joining God's mission. And I want to challenge you with this this morning for a second, because it's hard for us to really get this in our day and age. But the local church and every single individual believer are a part of the sending effort of Jesus here. We are a sent people. So joining God's mission is not just the task of some highly trained, selected spiritual leaders. It is the joint effort of the entire people of God. A church joining in God's mission is a church in which every individual member sees himself or herself as a missionary. As an agent for spreading the good news in word and in deed. And that's hard for people in San Antonio in 2018 to understand. Let me try to illustrate that. When I moved here, when Marianne and I moved here four and a half years ago to start the church, we just had a handful of names. Some of you were there, but the vast majority of you were not there at the very beginning. But, you know, we had no church. I had no worship service. So on Sundays, we would go visit other churches. And I spent a lot of the time uh, in my weeks just going around and asking people and trying to get to know people and asking questions about the area. And they would often ask me, so what do you do? And for pastors, here's a dirty secret. That's kind of a dreaded question because it's going to get awkward probably as soon as you tell them. But for a church planner, it's even worse. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Well, what's your church? <laughs> well, um, well, we don't actually have a church yet. Um, we came here to start one. Right now we're meeting in our living room and they start thinking cult, 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 Right. And so you're fighting an uphill tide already, but eventually you're like, yeah, I'm a pastor of a new church. We're called Christ Church. And what do you think? One of the first questions, if not the first question you get asked at that point is, anyone want to guess? Yeah, I think I heard it. Where do you meet? Where's your building? And then, you know, even more, well, <laughs> don't have a building yet. We, we meet in a school or we meet in a movie theater. We meet in my living room. 
And, and there's a lot, you know, people aren't, they don't have bad motives in asking that question, but it does say something significant about the way people view the church. We tend to view the church, you know, like the way we view our favorite taco stands in San Antonio. You know, if, you, if we took a survey in here, what's your favorite place to get Mexican food in San Antonio? We'd have 25 answers, and we could debate the merits or demerits of various restaurants. Well, I like the carne asada at such and such a place, or I like this place's chips and salsa, or the queso here is great. As consumers, we have the right to determine what we like the most, and therefore, with our money, choose that restaurant. And we tend to view churches in the same way. We tend to view churches the way we view, you know, where we shop for our clothes. We'll get clothes here or there or there because that's what I like the most. That's my preference. We get our nails done at the nail spa. We get our hair cut at the barber or the stylist. And we go to the church that we like the most and that best meets my spiritual needs. Now, that shouldn't all be thrown out. There's a lot of good in that. You do have spiritual needs that the church should meet. And the church should have a building. I mean, needs a building. I'm not anti-building. Trust me, don't stop giving to the building fund. Um, but, but it does say something about how we view ourselves as Christians. We tend to think that church primarily is a place people go to. But what Jesus' mission is, is that the church is a people who go. The church is not primarily a place people go to. The church primarily is a people who go. The church is a sent people. As one of my mentors, Harvey Kahn, says, the church is the only organization on the planet that exists for the sake of its non-members. And so I want to ask you, do you view the church and do you view, you view yourself in that light? In the framework with which Jesus views the church, that you are sent on God's mission with God's presence to proclaim God's gospel. And what will it look like in the coming months for us as a church to seek to more faithfully and continue to live as a people, corporately and individually, who are joining in God's mission? I want to give you a couple of practical suggestions as we finish up, okay? So stick with me. Four things. Four challenges for you. Four things I want you to pray about. Four things I want you to consider. Four things I would like you to join us in as we seek collectively to follow God in the mission of the gospel. First, pray with us. In Acts chapter 2, when the church is just formed, Luke sort of summarizes what the church did in verses 42 through 47. And he said the church was together regularly and they prayed. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread, which is a reference to communion. And daily people were being added to their number. Prayer is an essential aspect of the mission of God because it's God's mission. And so we connect with him via prayer as we seek to proclaim and live out the gospel. And so practically, 9.30 on Sunday mornings, we're going to start next week praying. I'm going to be here. I would challenge you to consider maybe coming 30 minutes early and praying for our worship gathering. Praying for the ministries we have that week praying for people to hear the gospel and be changed, and for those of us who believe the gospel to continue to be transformed by it. A church on mission is a church in prayer. So pray with us. Pray with us as a church together, Sundays at 9.30, and pray individually. individually. That's one. Two, please continue to work to make Christ Church, particularly in our worship gatherings, a place that is accessible and hospitable. I think we do a good job of this, and I hear that all the time from new people, that 
we're a friendly church, and I want to commend you for that. That's not because of me. <laughs> it's because of you. So well done. And uh, I think it's very important for us to continue to intentionally seek that out in our life together. And here's part of the reason why. If you've been at this church for more than two years, you're old here. Do you know that? Um, our church is three and a half years old. And because of the military presence in our church, there's a constant transition, right? And because we've grown numerically, there's always new people. And so if you've been here from the beginning, especially, you can look around and think, man, I don't feel like I know anyone here anymore. This isn't my church anymore. I have a few friends, but they're all gone. And I, who, what, huh, what? I mean, I feel like that sometimes, to be honest with you. And so I want to encourage you, if that's how you feel, to see that as a part of the way that you are sacrificially serving the mission. Last, last, or this past week, I was looking at some numbers from 2017, and I I looked at last year, 52 Sundays, 48 of 52 Sundays last year, we had a first-time guest here at this church on Sunday morning. So the vast majority of Sundays, someone is here for the first time. And so one way that we join in God's mission is by thinking about those who are new or not yet here and seeking to welcome and love them. Be hospitable. We have the greeting time, like I said, so you can embrace the awkward and say hi to other people and be nice. Maybe if you've been here for a while and you feel at home here, a challenge for you is for the first five minutes before church, and the first five minutes after, the last five minutes before church and the first five minutes after church, don't go to the people that you're initially drawn to. You know, like I want to go talk to a couple of people about college football. That's my initial thing. Sorry. That's who I am. That's what I want to do. And so it's a helpful way to join in God's mission to, instead of going to the people that I know I'm comfortable around, to look out for someone that's new and introduce myself. Right? That's one way to be hospitable, and I want to encourage us as we continue to have the transition and, and the growth and new faces all the time to think about that, okay? So pray, two, continue to work to make our worship gatherings accessible and hospitable. Two more, real quick. Third, invite someone to a worship gathering, a church event, or a Bible study. Next week, we're starting a new series in the Gospel of John. It's called Encountering Jesus. We're going to be looking at that through the beginning of the summer, and The Gospel of John is one of the best parts of the Bible to bring someone to hear about who isn't sure where they stand spiritually or who hasn't been in church for a while or who you know isn't a Christian and might be, you know, not like it. John's a great opportunity for people to hear about the real Jesus and encounter him maybe for the first time. So I want to challenge you to think about someone in your life, someone in your neighborhood, someone that you work with, someone at school that you can invite, that you can bring so that they can hear the good news. Last, I want you to consider participating in our Mercy Justice initiatives this year. As I mentioned, Will, that's one of the things that Will is gifted in and will help us continue to move forward in as a, as a ministry in our church. And we think it's really important that the gospel manifests itself not just through its proclamation, but through its demonstration in caring for the poor and the marginalized and the needy. It's very important because scripture demands it, that's what God is like, and it's also, um, it's also something that helps us accomplish the mission of God. And so we're going to be engaging in more and more mercy and justice initiatives. The, Brazil, or the Bolivia trip is an opportunity for that, but there's also local opportunities. And I want you to consider participating in that with us. There's all kinds of opportunities. Last year, we've worked with San Antonio Mercy Ministries. We worked with Um, We worked with Boysville. We worked with hurricane relief efforts. There's all sorts of things that we can do, and I want you to consider participating in that. 
Those are all very practical, helpful ways for you to live out your identity as a sent Christian, as a missionary. That's how we together can join in God's mission. There's a million other applications of this. I'm sure you have a lot that you can think of and help me get better at. I think we're doing great as a church. We're in a great place. We're healthy. The gospel's going out. Let's join together and recenter our lives on the gospel. And remember that we are sent with the power of the Holy Spirit on God's mission to give the gospel in word and deed to those who desperately need to hear it. Are y'all ready for that, 2018? All right, let's go. Let's pray.